Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today is our fourth and final episode on LGBTQ history and rights, with our essential texts being the Supreme Court case Obergefell v. Hodges, Michael Warner's book, The Trouble with Normal, Cruising Utopia, The Then and There of Queer Futurity by Jose Esteban Munoz, and No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive by Lee Edelman. And today we're going to discuss the last of those two titles. And my reading partner is the spectacularly brilliant historian and teacher and my dear friend, Matthew Nelson. I'm so, so excited for this conversation with you today, Matthew. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be back in conversation with you, Amy. I'm so, so glad that I read these books because they've really helped me develop my empathy and my understanding and even just my knowledge of history. But especially with this last text, this was probably the most challenging. And you shared some context with me the other day that was really, really illuminating and really helpful. So I'm wondering if you could start out our episode by sharing that with our listeners right now. Absolutely. Few communities, like survivors of genocide, understand what it is to face annihilation, both as an individual and a member of a group. I was just a boy when the HIV-AIDS brutalized the queer community, but as a student of history, I try to read every book, watch every movie I can related to this extraordinary but tragic moment in order to understand it all better, because I never want to be too far away from my community's brush with queer generational annihilation. I talked to all of my gay forefathers of San Francisco about this darkness. One of the common themes remarked on frequently in these conversations is the disenchanting experience of seeing crowds of young gay men ambling about the sidewalks like zombies, emaciated and stumbling. They tell me that they went to a funeral like every week, sometimes even multiple times a week. I used to live on Alamo Square in San Francisco, and I would jog to the Castro, a historically gay neighborhood, to visit my gym. I passed an older African-American man who sold beautiful flower arrangements on a street corner who would smile and wave almost every time I passed. One day, I saw another of these documentaries called We Were Here, And I recognized that one of the men profiled in this PBS film was Guy, the same street side florist who waved me on as I made my way to the gym. The next workout, I resolved to stop and say hi to Guy. So I did. He was delighted that I admired his contributions to the film. I asked him what it must have been like to sell the funeral flowers to attendees of all these funerals. Guy elaborated on his stories of death and dying for me, but he wanted me to know that younger gay men like me have to remember that death is forevermore an important part of our history, and we cannot be afraid of death. Instead, and this is where his tone shifted to a kind of jubilance, we have a future. Hmm. Queer theorist Heather Love characterizes this contradictory experience as looking forward while feeling backward. And I just love that. Looking forward while feeling backward. This tension between the present and the future is at the heart of today's queer theory 
about queer temporality that we discussed in that last episode. If you recall, we studied what heteronormative temporality was and contrasted it with the imaginative constructions of queer temporality that Michael Warner offered us. Today, we encounter the dueling theories of queer temporality from Lee Edelman and Jose Esteban Munoz, taking the dispute over queer temporality into the 21st century. That's a beautiful introduction, Matthew, and listeners will appreciate why I found it so moving and um, so illuminating, really, as we approach a text that's called you know, the, the subtitle is queer theory and the death drive, right? What is that? What, what does that mean? Death drive? And why would that be a part of a, you know, a guiding philosophy of life really? And so that's just a a fantastic way to start us out. So I'll introduce the authors of these two texts that we're going to be comparing and contrasting today. So Lee Edelman was born in 1953. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree from Northwestern University, and he received a Master's of Philosophy and a PhD from Yale University. He is an American literary critic and an academic, and he serves as a professor of English at Tufts University. Our other author today, Jose Esteban Munoz, was born in Havana, Cuba in 1967 and moved to Florida with his parents the year he was born. He received his undergraduate education at Sarah Lawrence College in 1989 with a BA in comparative literature, and in 1994, he completed his doctorate in literature at Duke University. He was a professor at New York University's Titch School of the Arts until his death in 2013. So let's dive into the text. Should we get into some of these terms here that Lee Edelman uses in his text? Yes, yes, please. Okay. So Lee Edelman uses queer differently, and we should understand that. For Edelman, queerness, quote, can never define an identity. It can only disturb one. For for Edelman, queerness can only disrupt politics or that heteronormative temporality that we've been talking about. It cannot produce one. It cannot produce an identity or it cannot produce its own politics. That's why Edelman is saying that we've got to back away from the sociopolitical order. That is how Edelman is using queerness in this text. Now, Edelman also says that there is this all-consuming central motif in American politics. He calls it the child, the imaginative, symbolic concept of the heteropatriarchal temporality, a sort of stand-in for all present and future children. Now, he's not talking about any individual child, and he's not even talking about actual children here. He's saying that the child is a symbol for everything that we try to do in our society that we say we're doing for the children. And so the child is his concept for all the things that we justify and legitimize that we don't like or that we find unseemly about in the present, how we're denying people constitutional rights or how we're saying we're trying to make a better future when in reality, this better future really never comes. We continue to say that it will come, but honestly, it never comes. 
all our politics, all of it, all of our uh, social life is oriented toward the child. And so he is speaking in a literal sense, sure, because this is part of the heteronormative temporality that we're talking about. But he's also saying, just as a society, we're told that a better future is coming and is tomorrow, but it's always just a day away. So it's not only a disappointment for queer people, but it's a disappointment for all of us because a more hopeful, better tomorrow Mm -hmm. always seems within our grasp, but never graspable. So Edelman is taking a very pessimistic view here. And and also, curiously, Edelman maintains Mm -hmm. that even gays and lesbians are in on the fixation on the child. So uh, let's get into it here. So Amy, would you read us our next passage from Edelman here? Okay, here we go. Quote, Thus, while lesbians and gay men by the thousands work for the right to marry, to serve in the military, to adopt and raise children of their own, the political right, refusing to acknowledge these comrades in reproductive futurism, counters their efforts by inviting us to kneel at the shrine of the sacred child, the child who might witness lewd or inappropriately intimate behavior, the child who might find information about dangerous, quote-unquote, lifestyles on the internet, the child who might choose a provocative book from the shelves of the public library, the child, in short, who might find an enjoyment that would nullify the figural value itself imposed by adult desire of the child as unmarked by the adult's adulterating implication in desire itself. The child, that is, made to image for the satisfaction of adults an imaginary fullness that's considered to want and therefore to want for nothing. As Lauren Berlant argues forcefully at the outset of The Queen of America Goes to Washington City, quote, a nation made for adult citizens has been replaced by one imagined for fetuses and children, end quote. On every side, our enjoyment of liberty is eclipsed by the lengthening shadow of a child whose freedom to develop undisturbed by encounters or even by the threat of potential encounters with an otherness of which its parents, its church, or the state do not approve, uncompromised by any possible access to what is painted as alien desire, terroristic ally holds us all in check and determines that political discourse conform to the logic of a narrative wherein history unfolds as the future envisioned for a child who must never grow up, end quote. So interesting. I had some thoughts about that. And again, it just, yeah, it helped me understand what he was talking about with the child and that um, all of our, you know, our legislation and our, our formation of our, you know, our moral code, I guess, exists to protect this perpetual child. Like you had said, like it's a future that never comes because there's just always, um, as each generation of children grows up, there's another one to replace it. Right. And (laughs) so if you're doing, you know, something for the child that, that really, truly that tomorrow will never come. So Edelman urges queers to embrace our outlaw status, to live out our vulnerability, to live now and not the future what he's asking us to do is to stop thinking in a future-oriented direction. We should think only about what is happening now. Think about the individuals, the adults, the children who exist right here in our presence, and what can we be doing for them right now? 
Edelman is asking us to be very present oriented and he's telling the queer community, you do yourself no service by longing for some future that will never, ever come. You've got to start to fashion your world. You've got to be world makers right here, right now. So to paraphrase what Edelman is saying here, queers have great potential to expose the ruse that is heteronormative temporality, or what Edelman is calling reproductive futurity. Under close inspection, trying to legitimize every rejection of the expansion of civil rights and freedom for historically oppressed minorities, why? For the good of the child, becomes on its face ridiculous and unjust. Edelman is saying here that queers have the potential to show the world this absurdity by subtracting themselves from heteronormative temporality altogether. Conservatives see that queers have the potential and are fearful of that, while liberals are fooled into thinking they can just sort of manage such volatile forces. According to Edelman, that is reproductive futurity. That is the status quo. That is the way that we've always done it in a patriarchal fashion. If According to Edelman, we were really progressive. We would just start over and figure out a new way that we could live our lives. So mm-hmm. Edelman, therefore, wants queers to go dark, to sub- subtract ourselves from the sociopolitical order, refuse to participate in the sociopolitical order. And Edelman is giving us some marching orders here. He's saying, We must own our outlaw status, go dark, don't participate in a social system that is going to deny you your humanity. What you really need to do is you need to frustrate the entire thing, primarily by just not being in it, by not participating in it. We should radically problematize the social order. We should lead a revolution against the social order. And this is what we've been talking about. We should explode the heteronormative temporality and introduce into the world alternative queer temporalities. So for Edelman, he's maintaining that queers really should live their own lives. And I could get into the details here where we might have our eyebrows raised and say, so our sex clubs on the table, polyamory, all these things that respectable society doesn't participate in. Oh yeah, that's exactly what he means. All of that. <laughs> and again, I'm presenting the idea. I'm not necessarily endorsing the idea. I think it's important for us not to sanitize the idea either. And he mm-hmm. then says in this sort of la, 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 live for today, right? He says, <laughs> and so this is on page 31. What is queerest about us, queerest within us, And queerest despite us is this willingness to insist intransitively to insist that the future stop here. There is now and we can own the now with all of its precarity, with all of its tragedy, with all of its inhumanity. We should live now. The future stops here. And when he said the future, the future stops here, (laughs) that sent shockwaves throughout the world of queer theory. Does this mean Mm -hmm. this spells the end of queer theory? 
we have nothing more to theorize. The future stops here. Yeah, it sent a shock through me too. Is that a viable moral philosophy to say <laughs> the future stops here? Like, I, I mean, yeah, he's he's calling into question things that I did not know could be called into question. But it didn't stop there, right? I mean, queer theory hasn't stopped with Edelman because people have responded to him. And that's why it's so so valuable, right, to read him to because then it gives us such an interesting point from which we can hear the counterpoint and discover the wisdom in conversations and argumentation and debate, right? Mm -hmm. When I'm reading Edelman here, I'm thinking with other queer theorists coming out of 2004, 2005, 2006, that Edelman gets it so right in his critique. And we can appreciate that mm -hmm. about what he is critiquing here. He's critiquing in the most dramatic way possible, the heteronormative temporality that we've been discussing, what he calls this sort of reproductive futurism. But and I'll speak for myself here. I am not necessarily willing to go with him in the direction of what he's advising us to do with ethics and how the future stops here. And this is why it's so important for us to discuss Munoz, Jose mm -hmm. Esteban Munoz, Cruising Utopia, The Then and There of Queer Futurity in 2009, where Munoz is saying essentially what we just said, that Edelman's critique is spot on. What a genius. But does that mean that queers cannot hope for a better future? And if they can't, then what is the sustenance for the journey to enact queerness if we really have nothing that we can sustain ourselves with? Does that make sense, Amy? Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay. So let's go into Munoz's text here. And he's somewhat repetitive. Um, the book is filled with lots of great examples. Each chapter expounds a different dimension of what he calls queer futurity. So we're not going to get into the details there. We'll just present his queer theory and tease out some of the insights. Let's start reading on page one. This is what is so coherent and easily understandable about Munoz. He just sort of lays it out on the table on the very first page. And he does so very eloquently. So Amy, could you read us page one of Munoz's text? Yes. He says, queerness is not yet here. Queerness is an ideality. Put another way, we are not yet queer. We may never touch queerness, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. We have never been queer. Yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. The future is queerness's domain. Queerness is a structuring and educated mode of desiring that allows us to see and feel beyond the quagmire of the present. The here and now is a prison house. We must strive in the face of the here and now's totalizing rendering of reality to think and feel a then and there. Some will say that all we have are the pleasures of this moment, but we must never settle for that minimal transport. We must dream and enact new and better pleasures, other ways of being in the world, and ultimately new worlds. Queerness is a longing that propels us onward beyond romances of the negative and toiling in the present. 
Queerness is that thing that lets us feel that this world is not enough, that indeed something is missing. Often we can glimpse the worlds proposed and promised by queerness in the realm of the aesthetic. The aesthetic, especially the queer aesthetic, frequently contains blueprints and schemata of a forward-dawning futurity. Both the ornamental and the quotidian can contain a map of the utopia that is queerness. Turning to the aesthetic in the case of queerness is nothing like an escape from the social realm, insofar as queer aesthetics map future social relations. Queerness is also a performative, because it is not simply a being, but a doing for and toward the future. Queerness is essentially about the rejection of a here and now, and an insistence on potentiality or concrete possibility for another world. <laughs> End quote. Wow, is that different from Edelman? I mean, it's the opposite. It's an argument. It's an argument, isn't it? Truly. With and Edelman. you can definitely see that he is in conversation with Edelman here. Yeah. He is granting that the, the future might be hard to see, but we need to keep that future in mind if we're ever going to be able to combat the heteronormative forces in the present from overwhelming us, from suffocating us. So he's agreeing with Edelman that our queerness is not an identity. It's not a political organizing principle. It's it's not identity politics. He's totally in agreement with Edelman here on that point. But he says... With you, Edelman, we have to enact our queerness. Our queerness lies in its destabilizing the norms, in its destabilizing social scripts, in the heteronormative temporalities that we have been told we need to embrace lock, stock, and barrel. But what he rejects about Edelman is Edelman's nihilism. He says, absolutely, we've got a future. And only in hoping and longing and striving toward that future Will we ever be able to do the work in the present that we need to do in order to breathe, in order to to have the pleasures that we long for and the, the ethics and the aesthetics that we are capable of? We have to believe in a future so that we can do that work in the present. He, you know, when you read Edelman, there is a sense in which Edelman is individualistic and that it's really so inwardly focused and it's anchored in the now. But for Munoz, he embraces collectivity. He embraces intersectionality. We haven't really talked about how these ideas overlap with race and with gender per se, because if it is focused on pleasure, then we're not really taking taking into account the full rainbow of options of of gender. So according to Munoz, we have to think in terms of the collective intersectionally. We have to hope. We have to believe that a utopia is possible. So let's read a little bit more in what Munoz is saying about this queer future. He writes, quote, the queer futurity that I am describing is not an end but an opening or horizon. Queer utopia is a modality of critique that speaks to quotidian gestures as laden with potentiality. Queerdom is here in a moment 
but it is breaking forth into a future that brings great possibility. Munoz goes on to say, quote, Lee Edelman, in his powerful polemic, No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive, recommends that queers give up hope and embrace a certain negation endemic to our objection within the symbolic. What we get in exchange for giving up on futurity, abandoning politics and hope, is a certain jouissance that once defines and negates us. I have attempted to outline this polemic in a fashion that displays some of my admiration for it. I agree with and feel hailed by much of no future. He's essentially saying, yeah, I get Edelman and I agree with Edelman regarding his critique of a future that is so the child oriented. But he's saying we cannot sustain this way of living if we have no politics, if we have no hope, if we don't believe in a future. And again, this is what I hear Munoz saying that I don't see an Edelman, let's just live in the moment and forget about the future. I, I can't see how we can sustain that as a community. Let's get a little bit more into what he says about how we may exercise queer futurity. Amy, can you read that last quote for us? Mm hmm. He says, I dwell on hope because I wish to think about futurity. And hope, I argue, is the emotional modality that permits us to access futurity par excellence. Queers, for example, especially those who do not choose to be biologically reproductive, a people without children, are within the dominant culture, people without a future. They are cast as people who are developmentally stalled, forsaken who do not have the complete life promised by heterosexual temporality. This reminds one of the way in which worried parents deal with wild queer children, how they sometimes protect themselves from the fact of queerness by making it a stage, a developmental hiccup, a moment of misalignment that will hopefully correct itself or be corrected by savage pseudoscience and coercive religion, sometimes masquerading as psychology. In this chapter, I consider the idea of queerness as a stage in a way that rescues that term from delusional parents and others who attempt to manage and contain the potentiality that is queer youth. In this chapter, I enact a utopian performative change in the signification of the phrase, it is only a stage, deployed in the name of the queer child. In this case, the queer wild child of a punk subculture. So there are two things that I want to tease out of this passage. One comes out of personal experience where I often have people ask me, so are you and Rob going to have children? And mm -hmm. don't I, I, I hear in that an expectation that to be completely fulfilled or to be in a marriage or to be in a relationship, you should think about having children or you should enact that reproductive futurism. Instead, Munoz is prompting us to think about how we can use our queerness to open up new horizons of thinking and being in the world. He's expanding new horizons for all people, for women, for people of color, as a person of color himself, for queers. How can we make the world more free? How can we make it more enriching? 
How can we make it more generative? How can, how can we make it more joy-filled? We should all think about ways that we can start to perform and live out the future right now. So he points to drag shows as a way to perform the possible, to perform the future. Um, and you could also consider all literature and all theater, at least if it does its job well, to open up those new horizons of possibility for us. That's what I hear Munoz saying here. Perfect, Matthew. That's, yeah, a, a perfect quote, actually, to end on with Munoz, because it's so so clear and sums up some of those main themes in his work. So as we approach the end of the episode, I end these books and this whole series with you, Matthew, with so much more empathy and with, a, I mean, a vastly deeper understanding of history of LGBTQ life and a completely new acquaintance with the landscape of queer theory, including the significant disagreements within queer theory. I understand heteronormative temporality now having taken a step back to view it as such. I mean, that's a huge epiphany for me. I'll always remember your introduction to this episode about AIDS. And of course, I will always hold sacred in my heart our first episode when you listen to my story with so much love and mercy. And and I'll always remember your courage in sharing your story on that first episode. So I'll be grateful to you forever, Matthew. You're the best. Amy, I am so thankful that you asked me to do this project with you. Hug, huge hug. <laughs>